By tapering and then raising interest rates, is it possible that the Federal Reserve is intentionally trying to cause a market correction? What the Fed is doing now is they're with tightening liquidity and all these things, they're waving a pin at the biggest bubble we've ever seen in the stock market. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Adam Taggart, founder of Wealthion, welcoming you back for another week of making sense of money and the markets so that you can make better informed decisions about building your wealth. When I last interviewed this guest nearly a year ago, he expressed his concern that we were heading for both high inflation and a painful market correction. Well, we sure got the high inflation. So is the market correction still on his radar? To find out, we welcome back macro analyst Jesse Felder to the program. Jesse, thanks so much for joining us here early in the new year. Thanks for having me back, Adam. Oh, gosh, it's a pleasure, Jesse. I've really enjoyed reading your work uh, since the last time I interviewed you almost a year ago. So, um, But let's start at the high level, as I like to do in these interviews, and uh, begin with the question, what is your current assessment of today's global economy and financial markets? Wow, that's, you know, it's a big one. I think, you know, from the standpoint of the economy, um, you know, I think we're, we're already starting to slow. I mean, it, to me, it's kind of a mixed bag. I, one of the thing, main things I look at was uh, an indicator that I created based on an interview I saw with Stan Druckenmiller a few years ago. And he basically said the best economist he's ever seen is the inside of the stock market. And that is the, uh, you know, the most economically sensitive sectors of the stock market. You watch their relative performance, and that's probably the best economic indicator you'll find. And so those are things like retailers, transports, materials, industrials, all those things. And the relative performance of those sectors really peaked uh, almost a year ago, uh, spring of 2021. And the relative performance has been weakening since then. Now, they haven't been, you know, when you, you look at those stocks and those sectors, they haven't been outright, you know, selling off dramatically, like they're not down 20, 30% or anything. But to me, that the fact that the relative performance has uh, peaked and, and weakened since then suggests to me that the, the economic strength that we've seen has essentially peaked and begun to decelerate. And so, that to me usually happens, you know, six to nine months before you see a stock market peak. And now that we're seeing uh, the Fed starting to remove liquidity and tighten, uh, you know, financial conditions, uh, that paired with an economic slowing, you know, should, I think, make most investors pretty cautious right now. Uh, great. So is that, uh, is that sort of another way of saying that uh, you think that, um, the coupling of the economic slowdown plus the tapering then tightening for the Federal Reserve um, probably uh, equates to lower equity prices ahead? Yeah, you know, I think it, I had an interesting conversation over the summer with Jim Stack from Invest Tech, and Jim just does fantastic work. And he learned a lot through his career from the great Marty Zweig. And he said the, the two things that, that are, are most important to pay attention to are technicals, stock market technicals, and what the Fed is doing. And both of those things began to turn bearish uh, middle to late of last year. I, I wrote a couple of blog posts about the uh, deteriorating breadth of the stock market. We saw so many Hindenburg omens triggered on the NASDAQ uh, composite index last year 
I think it was 12 or 13 uh, Hindenburg omens. Just it's so, sorry to interrupt you, but can you just explain for folks that yeah. don't know what a Hindenburg omen is, what it is? It's a great question. So, you know, in an uptrend, um, when markets are strong, you typically see a lot of 52-week highs. A lot of the, the components in that index are hitting new highs along with the index. Uh, what happens when, uh, I guess what, what's required to trigger Hindenburg omen is that you have a lot, a lot of new 52-week lows at the same time. And that shouldn't happen during a healthy uptrend. And so when you start to see that type of breadth deterioration, the Hindenburg Omen was created as a, as a crash indicator, and it's not really effective at that. But when you look back at periods where we've had a number of Hindenburg Omens triggered, that's represented a significant warning towards the health of the underlying market, the breadth of the market. And so when you look back at times when we've had those 12 or 13 indicator, uh, Hindenburg Omens within a 12 month period, it's almost always preceded significant volatility, a 20% plus correction in the stock market. So uh, to me, that was significant technical deterioration we were seeing in the second half of last year at the same time the Fed turned hawkish, at least in terms of its rhetoric. I think it's hard to, to argue the actual Fed actions are hawkish today, but they're certainly talking a lot more hawkish. And that removal of liquidity that they're talking about right now, putting into place, paired with the technical deterioration, to me, tells you that it's time. Yes, it's time for um, a correction in the stock market. is very highly likely, at least right. a correction, if not, you know, something larger like a you know major bear market, which is something I've been looking for for a while. So yeah, okay, and that that's actually where my next question is going. Um, which is so you've sort of answered the first question. You know, when we talked a year ago, you said, "Hey, we may have high inflation and a stock market correction at some point in time." High inflation's here. Sounds like you're saying, and get ready, there very well may be a, a, a market correction coming. Um, given all the things that you look at, um, what magnitude are you expecting here? You can give you can give a range. I'm not not, not well, looking for it's... a commitment I'm going to hold you to, but just general sense. Yeah, no, I think the, the Fed has to, my friend Julian Brigden has made the point that uh, the Fed has to create a significant correction in the stock market. They have to, when you look at financial conditions, you know, that, uh, you know, the Fed monitors, stock prices are one of the major factors in that. And so to look to, to appear to the world uh, and to, you know, essentially both political parties right now that they are upholding their mandate of stable prices, they have to tighten financial conditions and they basically have to catalyze a market correction in order to get that. So, you know, when you look back at, what was it that you know caused Powell to, to pivot in late 2018, uh, famously from, you know, we're nowhere near neutral on the Fed funds rate to okay, we're done hiking rates. You know, basically overnight was a 20% correction in the S&P 500. Um, you know, I, I think with uh, the inflation today potentially hitting 7% this week on headline CPI or higher, and the Fed funds rate at zero, the Fed's probably never been further behind the curve than they are today. And so the, 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 the bar, the hurdle for them being able to, for Powell to be able to pivot again is much higher than it was in 2018. So I, I think, you know, they might need a 30, you know, 30% correction, um, you know, in the stock market before they can even consider pivoting back to a dovish stance. I think it's fascinating for me to look at uh, you know, 40% roughly of the NASDAQ stocks today are down 50% off of their highs. Isn't that crazy? Uh, 
It's that's the deterioration that I'm talking about. So it wouldn't be surprising, honestly, with that kind of deterioration under the surface to see a much bigger correction in the stock market. Now, what what would a 50% correction in the S&P 500 look like? To me, it's mind blowing to think that if the S&P 500 fell 50% from its highs, you still wouldn't even be back to the COVID lows. We still wouldn't even be back to March, the, the low of March 2020. It now requires a 55% decline in the S&P 500 to get back to test that COVID low again. So to, to see a 30% decline in the S&P 500, you know, is, you know, it's just a testament to how much all of this money printing has created. It's created such a, the biggest blow off stock market top that I think we've ever seen in history. Um, uh, you look at the last three years returns in the S&P 500, and it's greater than the three years ending in March 2000 at the peak of the dot-com mania. So this blow off today is bigger in terms of percentage returns in the last few years is bigger. Valuations are 30, 40% higher than they were if you look at price to sales ratios in the S&P 500. So I, I just don't think it would be surprising at all to see 30% decline uh, from you know, the recent S&P 500 peak. Yeah, and as you say, you know, we could we could lose 30% of the S&P right now and it would be back to where it was right before COVID hit. And we could have had a discussion back then about how overvalued the market was back then, right? I mean, it's still hugely higher than the peaks of both the dot-com and the, the 2008 crests. So, um, all right, so you're basically saying, look, you wouldn't bat an eye if the if the S and P lost about thirty percent from here, um, and I also think your point about um, I want to dig just a little bit deeper into your your point of of uh, the Fed kind of having to engineer almost this market correction. Um, I just looked at uh, Atlanta Fed's GDP now, and it looks like they're saying that GDP growth in Q four is going to be six point eight percent, right? Um, and that's obviously been super juiced by all the stimulus that was shoved into this the system over the past year and a half. Um, but it's it's, <laughs> it's pretty hard not to look at a GDP growth number like that and say, hey, things might be overheating just on GDP growth alone, right? And then of course we have the whole inflation side of the, the story as well, which you and others have just talked to Michael Pento last week. And he basically said, yeah, the, the reason why we can't have a pal pivot this time around is because of inflation. Inflation has just limited the Fed's ability uh, in a way that it, we really haven't seen in the past decade plus. So I see you nodding here as I'm saying this. So uh, I guess my question for you going on from here is, is, is there a particular trigger you think is going to happen here? Or is it just, you know, we're, we're at that point where, you know, uh, the Fed is now, you know, basically sort of turning on the asset bubble it, it helped create? Well, I think that that's probably what's going on, and I think what we've what we've learned over the last ten years is that uh, central bank policy, this extreme dovish experiment that we've had for ten plus years, really since the financial crisis, uh, quanti through quantitative easing, the Fed can spur risk appetites, or they can dampen risk appetites. Essentially, you know, this has been the term "animal spirits" that dates, you know, way back to you know the invention of central banking. Essentially, uh, the central bankers have always known they can spur animal spirits, or they can they can dampen those. And I think that the Fed has spurred you know animal spirits greater than they've ever done before. I mean, with five trillion dollars of money printing in, in less than two years, we've seen animal spirits go absolutely berserk where, where you have money just pouring into equities, but not just pouring into equities, money losing and meme stocks and call options, right? I think 
I think almost a trillion dollars of call options were bought just on Tesla stock last year, $850 billion worth of calls were purchased. It's, it's absolutely mind boggling. You see it in cryptocurrencies, you see it in everything. So the Fed printed $5 trillion of dollars and they kicked risk appetites into a gear that we haven't even seen. I think it's Charlie Munger said it's, it's beyond anything he witnessed during the dot-com mania. And I absolutely agree that we didn't see risk-taking uh, across all asset classes and, and you know these these types of craze, craziness that we saw uh, you know recently we didn't we didn't see that 20 years ago. Now the Fed is saying, okay, wow, we've we've gone a little too far and inflate we have inflation, we have uh, asset bubbles. Um, and now we have to rein in inflation and part of that is going to be dampening animal spirits. The problem that I think the Fed really has is I don't think Powell or anybody at the Fed, can play, you know, animal spirits, uh, you know, to the, you know, fine tune them to directly to what they want them to be. So I, I think basically you can create a bubble and you can, you can burst that bubble, but there's not a lot of fine tuning it in between. And so what the Fed is doing now is they're with tightening liquidity and all these things, they're waving a pin at the biggest bubble we've ever seen in the stock market. And if it pops, you know, there's no putting that genie back in the bottle. In the bottle, it's you know, you just burst this bubble that you blew up in the first place. And so, to me, it's an extremely dangerous game that the Fed is playing. And I think that you know, I you mentioned um, you know, it's possible Powell will not be able to pivot again. I think there's no doubt Powell's going to pivot again because the Fed now understands that the economy is so tied to the stock market. And this is why they've, they've tried to support it so much in recent years and, and why he pivoted in 2018. Because if the stock market crashes, you know you're getting a, a deeply painful recession. They know that if they spur wealth, uh, you know, uh, the wealth effect is essentially what Bernanke you know, called it. We're going to try and boost asset prices, create a wealth effect. They understand that the negative wealth effect is probably even more powerful than a positive wealth effect. You see asset prices go up, people feel wealthy, they spend. But if asset prices crash, right? People spending disappears. The economy goes in the toilet. And so this is why the Fed says we can't allow a stock market crash. And so I think when it comes down to it, they'd rather let inflation run high, you know, above target for you know indefinitely than allow the asset prices to crash. Now, whether they can have the, you know, they're able to pull off any of that is, you know, anyone's guess. But I do think they're going to try and tighten financial conditions right now, create a correction. Uh, at some point, though, they're going to have to pivot because they just can't afford to allow markets to, to really correct to where their natural, you know, equilibrium would be for asset prices. All right, awesome. Um, I, I really want to dig into this because this is this is the really interesting part here. So, um, if I understand what you said correctly, and please correct me if I'm stating this wrong, um, you're saying the Fed is trying to engineer a correction, basically to take enough heat off the system, right, uh, to be able to, um, you know, get things to a little bit more of a manageable state, but but not crater. Um, it's really trying to avoid, it's trying to engineer a correction, but not a crash, right? And, and you're saying if it begins to get into crash territory, then it's going to have to step in and stimulate because um, the negative wealth effects and the maybe vicious cycle that begins if the system really tries to get back to where, I think if left alone, it would, it would deflate to on its own. 
um, that 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 would be perceived as too much, too soon, too intolerable uh, economically and perhaps politically. And then you know the, the Fed would really be doing everything it can to fight that. And there there are a lot of people I've, I've talked to who that's basically what they sort of think is going to happen here, which is that um, uh, we are going to see some sort of market correction event going on here. It may start to get so painful that you know the Fed steps in and says, okay, we don't we, we don't want this level of injury. And then the Fed steps in with a stimulus potentially of a scale that makes what we've seen to date look like child's play. Do you sort of are you sort of of a similar mind to that or? Yeah, I mean, I, it, we're starting to talk, you know, several steps, you know, in advance, and it's hard yes. to know, you know, three, four steps down the road. But I do think that this is what what's driven the Fed for you know, my entire career is, you know, you, you watch the dot com bubble burst. And Alan Greenspan's biggest fear was it was a 1929 crash type of precipitating another, you know, Great Depression, which is why he lowered interest rates to 1% and engineered the housing bubble. Um, because he was afraid of another Great Depression resulting from an asset price burst. Same thing Bernanke was, you know, said we have to do whatever it takes to create another Great Depression when the housing bubble burst. And so the Fed, I think that's the absolute, the Fed's greatest fear is that uh, an asset pr price bubble, when it, when it reverses and crashes, it creates such long-term painful consequences that they have to do everything in their power to prevent that. Now, whether they they can, and you know, I mean, I think really what the Fed has accomplished in the last ten years is just pulling forward asset returns, you know, from the future, uh, and you can only do that for so long before you you know leave a future of no potential future returns. And I think that's where we are now. Is asset prices are to a level where you've sucked out 10, 20 years worth of returns, um, you know, to the present, and so that leaves a very you know. Uh, bleak view for, for investors uh, over that time period. But that, that's also why bonds are priced, you know, less than 2% on the, on the 10 year still is because that's, you know, kind of we're in this environment where, where nothing is priced to really return anything. And, uh, and, and so I think that probably what we're facing is yes, the Fed does need to look as like uh, appear as if it's addressing inflation, right? They can no longer say that it's transitory. Both Democrats are now afraid of, uh, of losing the elections because of inflation and Republicans are using it as an issue. And so there's bipartisan you know, pressure on the Fed now. They have to do something. Yeah, but, but they're not going to do enough to really. I mean, according to the, uh, uh, you know, the Taylor rule, Fed funds rate should be 8% today, 8.5%. Right? I mean, it's insane. There's no way the Fed could go anywhere near the point of actually addressing inflation. They're, they're so far behind the curve. And so to do that would crash asset markets. They're not willing to crash asset markets. So they're gonna talk tough. They're gonna do enough to create a correction, but at some point they're gonna, they're gonna back off that. And I think to me, the most impl interesting implications of that or are, you know, can they rescue the stock market? I don't know. But if they do uh, deviate from all the hawkish talk, Right, right now, I think the most interesting thing to think about is the dollar is pricing in four rate hikes next year and uh, quantitative tightening. To any extent that the Fed backs off that, they don't actually uh, reduce the balance sheet. Maybe they don't even finish tapering. They don't pull off four rate hikes next year. 
that's going to be a dovish deviation from from the hawkish talk which means bearish dollar bullish for gold and commodities and all these other things because to me that's already priced in four rate hikes and a tapering even beyond tapering uh you know we're, we're a rolling off of the balance sheet is, is now priced into markets so the extent that they don't they're not able to pull this off means uh to, to me the most interesting implication of that is gold could potentially really explode uh, the next time we see a dovish, uh, you know, uh, pivot. In the part All of, right. Uh, and I want to follow, I want to follow up with you on that, on, on much of what you just said, but, but on the gold part specifically, we've had a number of recent guests kind of come to similar conclusions for some of the same reasons, some, some other ones, but gold just kind of keeps coming up again and again. And folks, I swear I'm not bringing on experts like Jesse, uh, because of gold, uh, he didn't I didn't even talk about this before uh, the, the filming started here, but it does just seem to keep coming up again and again through multiple different, uh, you know, uh, perspectives that gold may actually have a really bright future ahead of it uh, itself in the, the environment that's coming up here. But um, just to just to go back to a couple of things you said there, Jesse. Um, first, you're you're making a great case that I think we make often on this channel that um, uh Passive investing, which has been easy for the past decade, um, is is not going to work. It's not going to be as easy going forward. Um, we're, we're, we're entering an environment where there's going to be a lot of cross currents, right? There's going to be potentially markets here that are correcting either because they want to or because the Fed's trying to engineer it, but they might overcorrect and the Fed might step in. So there's just lots of things that are probably going to force the average investor to be more nimble going forward than they've uh, had to be in the past. Um, you also talked about how the way the market's currently priced right now, we've pulled so much future prosperity into today that we haven't really left any, you know, going forward. Um, had John Hussman on the program. We talked both about the Taylor rule, so I was glad you brought that up. Um, but he, he's got tons of charts, as I'm sure you're familiar with. I'm just going to put one up here, which is his latest um, future return chart. And it basically shows that the way markets are priced right now um, they are indicative that we will have, I think it's something like a negative 6% annual returns for the next 12 years um, based on the way that that's priced right now, right? So there's just, we, we've left nothing for future investors in terms of gains over the next decade here. Now, of course, it's probably not going to be negative 6% annualized, you know, for the next, for each of the next uh, 12 years, there's probably going to be some massive drawdowns, some years that are recoveries, et cetera. But net net, you know, prices are likely going to need to come down. And for all the reasons that you just mentioned here. Um, all right. So uh, I, I want to follow up on something that you mentioned in your writings relatively recently, Jesse here. So um, one of the things that has driven the current financial market prices to the heights they are today, there's all the stimulus we talked about, but there's been a ton of leverage in the system. Um, in fact, I think um, maybe more leverage than we've ever seen before. You had a great chart of leveraged equity speculation I'm gonna put up here. Um, God, I mean, not only does this seem reckless that that uh, leveraged assets are at a you know much higher extreme versus just the general S&P index than they've, they've ever been, um, but you also note that insiders are selling at the highest annual pace on record. And to me, I look at those two data points and think, are these, is that a sign that the pilots are bailing out of the plane that the rest of the investors are riding in right now? 
Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I, you look at uh, the insiders uh, activity, something I've followed for my entire career. I, uh, you know, co-founded a hedge fund and it was one of the foundations of our research is, is if you think a stock is cheap, right? I want to see the CFO putting his, you know, validating my view by buying shares in the open market and increasing his own holdings. Um, you know, conversely, if I, if I think a stock is, is uh, you know, overvalued, you know, there, there should be probably some insider selling um, to confirm that, that thesis. What we've seen, you know, over the last 12 months is insider selling on a level we've never seen before. And even in terms of the ratio. So I look at the, the insider sell to buy ratio. Um, and uh, Najat Sehun is a you know, professor of the you know, uh, business at, I think, University of Michigan. He's written a, a fantastic book on this topic, and he shows that, and this comes back to your original question, when insider, the sell-to-buy ratio over a 12-month period um, is elevated, uh, it's a very good predictor of one- to two-year returns in the stock market and one- to two-year uh, future economic growth. So what we can infer from this massive insider selling is that uh, the fundamentals for the next one to two years are probably going to be weaker than, than consensus right now, but also stock market returns are probably going to be you know, weaker than most people expect. That, that's why you see all these the insider selling. I think it's uh, most interesting to note, too, that um, the selling is, on, is, is coming out of these big tech stocks. It's Elon Musk finally deciding to selling a chunk, you know, massive chunk of Tesla. Jeff Bezos finally selling massive chunks of Amazon. Mark Zuckerberg, I think you know, Bloomberg had a piece. Mark Zuckerberg was selling Meta stock every single day last year. He sold, you know, tens of billions of dollars worth of stock. Um, and, and so you see it in, in these tech stocks. And I think there's a number of reasons uh, you know, that they're selling. But the, the most obvious one is valuations are the highest they've been. My friend Eric Cinnamon recently pointed out price to free cash flow on the five biggest stocks in the S&P 500 is you know, 30, 40 times. If you take out stock-based compensation, which adds to cash flow, you're talking 50, 60 times free cash flow these stocks are trading at. So it's, it's by far the highest valuations any of these companies have seen in the last 10 years plus. And what I think a lot of people don't appreciate is the fundamentals of every one of these companies is deteriorating dramatically. They all saw huge revenue growth in 2020 as part of the pandemic. Revenue growth on, at every one of these companies is dropping dramatically. I'm talking you know, from 30, 40, 50% year over year to potentially single digits, digits and even negative revenue growth for some of these companies, Google, Apple notably, um, you know, this year. So when you have the highest valuations in 10 years paired with rapidly slowing revenue growth, I think that's a recipe for what we're seeing at these companies. Everyone's saying interest rates is going up and that's why these NASDAQ stocks are getting hit. No, you have the highest valuations that these companies have ever seen in terms of free cash flow at the same time, free cash flow growth, revenue growth, earnings growth, are all going to drop dramatically this year. That, to me, tells says that valuations have to come down in sympathy, and and that's 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 why these insiders are selling. They know we're going to get the best possible prices today. Fundamentals are deteriorating. This is an opportune time to to cash out. All right. So um, that's a very strong signal that they're selling. It's sending to the people who are watching, um, which I think is really important. The service that you've been doing in your writing here, telling people, hey, look, you know, the guys who know the most. Are getting out, right? Um, now, these companies in particular, these big tech companies that you listed, I mean, they've really been the lead horses dragging 
the market, you know, over outperformance over the past bunch of years. And, you know, you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, they are basically single-handedly supporting the major index prices right now, right? You talked about, what was it, 40% of the companies in the NASDAQ are down 50% or more, right? But but not not like the five or six big you know Fang stocks or whatever the new acronym is now. Um, they're gonna have to come up with a new one where you replace F with M, I guess, because of Meta, right? right. Um, but um, but uh, you know, so if those big stocks begin to stumble, you know, then we're really gonna start seeing the big in indices coming down. One because they make up such a big percentage of those indices, but also, and I was talking about this the other day with. I think it might have been with Michael Pento, but um, uh, they're, they're so over-owned, right? There are so many funds and ETFs that own those companies that um, you begin this sort of vicious cycle as um, investors begin to bail out as, as fund prices are, are dropping. Um, you know, it, it forces to meet redemptions, it forces additional sales of, of these companies. And so, uh, I guess my question to you is, 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 is there a, a, um, a bigger knock-on effect of these five companies going down, um, given how uh, lopsided this market is right now in terms of how much market value those few companies hold than we've had at future, company, uh, future uh, corrections in the past? Like, does it, does it make the market more vulnerable this time because of that lopsidedness? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, people don't recognize how heavily weighted, I mean, because we had this uh, shift in this, the way they determine sectors in the S&P 500 that, you know, they, sh they split out communication services from technology. But if you put those back together again, you know, t technology has, has never been a greater weight in the S&P 500 than it is today. It's, you know, by far the biggest sector and you're you're right there's a an important passive dynamic that's gone into inflating these companies if you go buy almost any etf uh you know they're the biggest holdings you know in the sp 500 and the nasdaq 100 and in all of these things and so when money flows in and last year we saw inflows into equity funds you know for for 2021 were equal to i think the 19 years combined prior to 2021. So massive inflows into all of these equity funds. The majority of that money, you know, a third of it plus goes into those massive stocks. Uh, and, and so, you know, are you gonna replicate 2021 again and create those kinds of flows again? Very unlikely, um, but I do think it's, it's really important to, to recognize that uh, you know, those companies are now the stock market. And, uh, you know, I think, that was also exacerbated by the trend towards ESG, which we also saw around the same time, 2019, 2020, where a lot of people said, okay, you know, I want to do not just make money in my investments, I want to do good, you know, for the environment and one thing. And essentially what ESG did was say, you know, we're going to just put more money into tech, we're going to take it all out of energy and materials and these things that are potential, you know, mining and, and, and whatnot, and we're going to just have an even greater tech weighting. And so people who went into ESG essentially said, yeah, okay, I want those stocks, but I want even more of them instead of, you know, whatever it is, you know, third of, you know, the S&P 500, I want 50% of my account in these top five stocks. And so, you know, I, there's been so much crowding into those things, um, whether it's wittingly or unwittingly. I think, you know, a lot of people have, have been buying tech and ARC and these things. And, uh, but I think there's also this unwitting 
um, you know, uh, crowding into those stocks with people just buying S&P 500 and not realizing that, uh, you know, when you are putting money into those things and flows are going to the S&P 500, it's all concentrating in those bigger names. And, you know, I, I think there was an interesting, um, you know, study that pointed out that for every dollar of inflows uh, into these things creates $5 of, of price appreciation. And so uh, we've seen those massive inflows last year. We haven't really seen, you know, what happens when those flows stop or reverse. And, and I think that's, that's the biggest worry because I don't really believe there's anything, uh, th there is any such thing as a truly passive investor. Everybody's an active investor um, and everybody is forced to time the market at times uh, just based on their own um, psychology. This was another point that was made by uh, my friend Jim Stack when I talked to him is that people don't time the market poorly. People who sell at the bottom uh, and this is an important thing, I think, to think about now when prices are good. The people who sell in 2009 at the bottom, people who sold to 2003 in the bottom, are usually people who are, you know, have, let's say you had a two, $3 million retirement account, you're blessed. Market, bear market takes away 50% of that. You say, okay, now I got a million five or a million, and I have to live the rest of my days on this. I can't afford to lose another three, two, three, four hundred thousand dollars. I have to sell today to preserve what I have and make sure that I can live out the next you know, 20, 20 years of my life and I have enough capital to do that. That is not a, uh, you know, a timing decision or anything. That is a, I have to preserve my own wealth at some point. And so I think there are no such thing as passive investors. I think everybody's an active investor. Uh, the market forces you to, to buy or sell at, you know, at times and you can choose whether you want to be an intelligently active investor or a non-intelligently active investor. And I think most people do it in a non-intelligent way, but I think this, that what we're going to find uh, in the next bear market is there is no such thing as a truly passive investor. Very important point. And uh, Jesse, uh, after we're done here, I'm going to have the lead partners from New Harbor Financial on, who's one of the financial advisors that's endorsed by Wealthion. Um, and I'll, I'll just uh, tell them where to send the check because I think you're basically making <laughs> a great case for, for why working, you know, under I have the, no affiliation. You know, <laughs> no affiliation with that, but, but you're making the great case for, hey, look, you know, benefiting from the guidance of experienced professionals um, is probably a good time for that versus just, you know, set it, forget it, and, and not being uh, terribly proactive about uh uh, what might happen to your wealth if some of the stuff we're talking about here actually does come to pass. Um, all right, Jesse, so let's let, let's start making this, you know, uh, relevant to investors on a more personal level, which is, okay, so um, you've definitely flagged a number of, of concerns that say, okay, you know, maybe I, I, I should position myself for the potentiality that there may be some market disruption this year. Um, you, you mentioned gold earlier. I know you wrote a piece on oil that I want to talk to you about briefly, but um, given the environment that you see ahead, what asset classes, sectors, you know, specific instruments do you think will, be, will fare better, um, will be more appropriate places to park capital than, say, the general market of the tech stocks like we've just been talking about? Yeah, well, you know, I... I... I sound, uh, you know, probably very bearish compared to, you know, what people see on financial television or whatnot, but uh, I think it would probably surprise people to learn. Our interview with Jesse continues over in part two, which will be released tomorrow as soon as we're through editing it. 
To be notified when it comes out, subscribe to this channel if you haven't already by clicking on the subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. And be sure to click the like button too down there while you're at it. And if Jesse's warning about the probability of both a market correction and a recession has got your attention, then be sure to register for Wealthion's approaching online conference on January 22nd. The focus of the conference will be how investors like you can safely navigate the challenges ahead in 2022. And the speakers we have lined up are just tremendous. Jim Grant, Jim Rickards, Lacey Hunt, Luke Groman, Daniel DiMartino Booth, Rick Rule, Brent Johnson, Tavi Costa from Crestcut Capital, that's just to name a few. And they'll be joined by experts on real estate, farmland, precious metals, and the blockchain. You'll want to act now while the early bird price discount of over 40% is still available. To learn more about the event, as well as how to register for it, just go to Wealthion.com slash Jan 2022. Okay, I'll see you next over in part two of our video interview with Jesse Felder.